Father in heaven, this study that we're involved in, well, it's a good one. I know that for a number of people, the book of Revelation causes them to run, and it causes them to hide in Scripture. They avoid this for all they're worth. But Father, I'm grateful that you have taken us headlong into this book. The things that we have seen already that you have said to these churches can stir our souls. I know that the rest of this study can do the exact same thing. I'm praying that you'll do that. Lord, would you build inside of all of us an anticipation for the day that we will stand before you face to face. Lord, over the course of these next few moments, it's my prayer that you will build within us an anticipation of the day that you return for your church. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. A few years ago, actually three years ago, I preached a message called The Everlasting Covenant of Salt based on a, a passage of Scripture that I had found in the Old Testament. We'll look at that again in just a moment. The premise of it is this, that we have an everlasting covenant made with the Lord, and nothing can separate it. I'll share more with you in, in a moment or two about where that comes from. But when I was preaching that, Deanie had just been hired and come on staff to run our small group ministry, and as he listened to that message, he decided to name our small groups SALT Groups. SALT is an acronym for serving alongside in life together. And that's really a, a, an accurate description of the type of covenant that we're going to be talking about today. We do life with other people. We study God's Word together in these small groups with other people. If you are not a member of a SALT group, I really encourage you to get involved in one. Ours is taking a break for the summer right now, like many of them are, but Tina and I are looking forward to when we're going to be able to get back together and get back into God's Word with one another. It is a great way to build relationship. It is a great way to do life with other people. So get tied in to one of the SALT groups. You won't be sad that you did. But now, let me show you what the Bible says about SALT. We're going to start in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to what God says. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Now we're going to skip over to the book of Numbers. Just go right, if you're following me through Scripture, go right to the book of Numbers, chapter 18, verse 19. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters as your regular share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. Now let's go book, to the book of Second Chronicles. Chapter 13, verse 5. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Now those are just a few quick glimpses into how much significance God puts in to what we would just call a normal spice. Salt matters to the Lord, and it matters for a number of reasons. There's a purifying aspect of it that God understands and recognizes and teaches. Now let me show that to you real quick. We're going to go to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2, verse 19. Turn over there with me real quick. You need to see this. 2 Kings, chapter 2, verse 19. The men of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad, and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. 
Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. That well is actually in the city of Jericho. You can still go to it today. It's where they draw their water from, and it's still pure today because of what happened in this passage. There's the purifying aspect of salt. Elisha threw it out into the water, it cleaned it up, and they're still drinking from it today. But Jesus would take it a little deeper in his teaching about this issue of salt in the New Testament. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 9, starting in verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now listen to this next part. Verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now most of us are familiar with the first part of that teaching. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. That's familiar to most people. But Jesus goes further with that teaching. He said, every one of us will be salted with fire. It means that we're going to go through trials. There's going to be some difficult moments in our life, and we're going to have to face them. The salt of the everlasting covenant that we have with God helps us do that. It helps us not just face those trials, but make our way through them. Jesus goes on to say, if your salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? In the book of Revelation, he'll actually show us. But it's a warning that we have to pay attention to. If your salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now let me explain the everlasting covenant to you. During the days when the Bible would have been written, people walked around with belts around their waist. They carried a number of things on those belts. It would have been like the bat belt. On one side, they had a pouch that had a lantern in it. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And a little jar of oil. So when they were walking at night, they could fill that lantern with oil, stick a wick into it, set it on fire, and it acted like a flashlight. When they would enter buildings, they would set that up on a lampstand, and it would illuminate the entire building. On the other side of the belt, they carried another pouch that had salt in it. If they were going to enter into a business agreement with somebody, some type of a covenant agreement, they would reach into their pouch pull out a pinch of salt, and put it on a table. The other person would do the exact same thing, reach into their pouch, pull out some salt, put it on the table, then together they would mix that salt up with each other. They would mix that salt up. Significance of it was this. You could not separate your salt out from theirs. From that point forward, the two of you were in a covenant agreement with one another. God said to the nation of Israel, I have made an everlasting covenant of salt with you. We cannot be separated one from the other. He says the same things to us because of Jesus Christ. I have made an everlasting covenant of salt with you. Our part of it, though, is our commitment. 
when we mix it all together, we're saying to the Lord, we're in this covenant. We don't want to be separated from you. We don't want our salt back. We want it to stay mixed together with yours. Jesus says, if your salt loses its saltiness, what are you going to do? Make sure it doesn't happen. The church in Thyatira lost their, their saltiness. They lost it. There's a number of reasons why they lost it, but they lost it. They needed to be reminded of their covenant agreement with Jesus. They needed to be reminded that they had entered into that covenant agreement willingly, but their salt had lost its saltiness. It really had. Now, it was an interesting place for anybody to live, especially for a Christian. The city of Thyatira during the writing of the Revelation, during the days that Jesus would have delivered that letter, unique place to live. It was not a place of political prominence like some of the other cities we've talked about. It was not a place of religious significance that we have talked about in these other cities. In fact, there was only one other god, the Greek god Apollo, that was worshipped there. It wasn't like temples were built all around this city, so people weren't going there to worship. It was not a military stronghold, though there were a number of military troops that were stationed in the city of Thyatira. The reason they were there, though, was simply to slow down any attacking forces that might be making their way towards the city of Pergamum. They were to sacrifice themselves just to buy some other people some time. Really, that's what it amounted to. Because of that, the city was destroyed over and over and over again. History records that. They were demolished and they rebuilt. They were demolished and then they were rebuilt. They were demolished and they were rebuilt. Because there were no mountains in the area, it was not a stronghold. So the soldiers that were there gave their lives over and over and over again. So they weren't a place of political power. They were not a place of religious prominence. They were not militarily significant. The city of Thyatira, though, had some other things going on for them. They were known for labor guilds, what we would refer to as unions. One in particular set them apart from every other place. They were known for the production of wool, particularly dyed wool then this labor union, this guild that they were a part of, opened up lines of marketing, lines of commerce with cities all over the area, some of them all the way across oceans, all because their unions pulled this off. The labor guilds pulled it off. The Bible actually shows that to us. Let me show it to you real quick. We're going to go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 13. Luke writes, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. For the longest time, people wondered why she was in the city of Philippi. That's where she was at when this was written. It was all the way across the Aegean Sea from the city of Thyatira. She was there representing the guild, the union. She was opening up trade routes. That's why she was there. That was the significance of the city of Thyatira. They were making that happen all the time. Yet those unions, those guilds, ended up causing them some problems. And we'll jump into that in just a minute. Let's go back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. 
It is very significant to see how Jesus introduces himself to this church. Verse 8 again. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. When Jesus says that his eyes are like blazing fire, this is what he's saying. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is hidden from him. He sees everything. He is aware of everything. Yet there were a number of people in that city and still today that believe that they can do certain things and hide it from the Lord. They believe that if they do it in secret, it will remain a secret. But here's the truth of the matter. Nothing you do in secret is hidden from God. His eyes are like burning fire. They see everything, everything. Back in the book of Genesis, that's where we first saw this concept of hiding from God show up. In fact, this is found in Genesis chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me. Adam and Eve are walking in the Garden of Eden with the Lord. It is wonderful fellowship. And then Satan finds his way in, convinces them to sin. After the sin, Adam and Eve decide that they would hide from God. That fellowship that they had had up to this point where they walked and talked face to face, they were going to hide from the Lord. They thought they could pull it off. Here's what happens. Chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Significant part of this right now is the fact that they were trying to hide from the Lord. God said, Where are you? Not because he needed to find them. He already knew where they were at. He said, Where are you? So that they could start the process of confessing what had happened. They were hiding from God. Folks, we still do the same thing today. We try to hide from God. We commit sins in secret, and we don't believe that the Lord's going to know about it. So we hide from Him. You cannot do that. His eyes see everything. There is nothing hidden from the Lord. For a lot of people, though, they decide that they finally are going to get to a place where they will no longer hide from the Lord. The sins that they've been committing in secret will become public sins. They'll do it out there for everybody to see, God and everybody else. It happens outside the church, and it happens inside the church. The church in Thyatira, we're talking about Christians, believers. They had lost their saltiness, and they were overtly sinning. And Jesus said, I see all of it. Today, he still sees all of it. If you decide that you have hidden from God enough, and there haven't been consequences, so you're just going to sin publicly, God's still watching. But it puts you in a, an interesting realm one that I refer to as the God mockers. And let me show you what the Bible says about that as well. Book of Galatians, chapter 6, starting in verse 7. Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Tina pointed something out to me between services. I want you to see this. Verse 7. Do not be deceived, Paul writes. God cannot be mocked. 
Most of us would read that as God will not be mocked. It's not what it says. God cannot be mocked. There's a different meaning in that. Back in the Gospels, when Jesus was crucified, we actually read about the soldiers that were mocking the Lord. That was a physical aspect. This is speaking in terms of the spiritual. God cannot be mocked. There is a point where God says, enough is enough. I will not put up with this, and I will not abide it any longer. God cannot be mocked. So when we make a choice to begin to publicly sin, to overtly sin, no longer wanting to hide from God, but to go out in front of everybody and do whatever we want to do and live however we want to live, God says, I'm not going to let you get away with it. Because he has a special interest in God mockers. Let's put it that way. That's what was happening in Thyatira. Back in Revelation chapter 2, here's the whole scenario. A lady had made her way into the church. She came in under the, the auspices of being a teacher of the things of God. She called herself a prophetess, and people listened to her. They gave her a position of authority in their church and in their lives. They started to do what she was teaching them to do. Jesus could not stand this woman. He referred to her as Jezebel. Now, there is every implication in the world that that was not her real name. Jezebel, the original one, shows up in the book of First and Second Kings. She was the most wicked queen to ever live, married to King Ahab. She was responsible, personally responsible for the death of thousands of God's prophets. But worse than that, worse than killing thousands of God's prophets, she ushered in Baal worship to the nation of Israel. She brought her false god into the Israelites' lives. And it took decades, centuries, to get him out. Baal worship became a mainstay of their worship of idols and false gods. And it is an atrocious worship. All of that is tied to the Lady Jezebel, the most wicked queen to ever live. So the implication in Revelation chapter 2 is that rather than calling this woman by her real name, Jesus just says, this Jezebel has been there teaching you these things. Nobody during those times would have named their daughter Jezebel. It had horrible implications. It would be like us naming a little boy today Adolf. That would be the, the exact same implication. Nobody's naming their children Adolf. Nobody was naming their daughter Jezebel. So Jesus has jumped into the realm of the sarcastic to get their attention. This Jezebel has made her way into your lives. She has made her way into your church, and you are buying into what she's saying. Jesus would actually go on to say this. She has taught you the deep secrets of Satan. Doesn't that make you curious to know what those are? The deep secrets of Satan? Well, here they are. I'll, I'll share them for you real quick. The first one is this, you can be like God and you can live in such a way as to make yourself happy and not worry about anybody else. You live for yourself and you can become like God. There you go, deep secrets of Satan. They showed up in the Garden of Eden and they have been around ever since. You see, our enemy is not creative at all. He always uses the exact same ploys. And that's what he uses over and over and over again. His deep secrets. Live in such a way as to please yourself and only yourself. And you can become like God. So this prophetess was teaching that kind of stuff. She was using the issue of the labor guilds to drive it home. 
some of those leaders, some of those employers were telling the members of the church that if they wanted to keep their job, if they wanted to stay employed, they were going to have to do certain things that would be offensive to their faith. They were going to have to do certain things that were contrary to the teaching that they had grown up in. They were going to have to compromise. The first time we compromise is typically very difficult. The second time we compromise, it comes a little easier. The third time we compromise, we don't give it much thought. And by the fourth time that we compromise, it's just habit. So this lady was teaching them, you just compromise a little bit for the sake of your employment, for the sake of your job, and everything's going to be okay. The unions were forcing that kind of stuff. The labor guilds were forcing that kind of stuff. And they were buying into it. The church was losing its saltiness because of it. Imagine it like this. Your boss comes to you and tells you that you're going to have to do something that's illegal, but he says it's only a little bit illegal. So I need you to do this for me for the sake of the company. If you'll compromise just a little bit and we pull this off, then we're going to get this big contract. We'll just keep it between the two of us. Nobody will know about it. There's the hiding. Nobody will know about it, and we're going to get away with it. Or your boss comes to you and says, I know that, that you have a problem with what we've been doing. I know that it's unethical, but it's the way we've always done business. If you want to stay here, then you're going to have to accept that, and you're going to have to do it. And don't kid yourselves. This kind of stuff happens all the time. And Christians end up in a situation where they have to make that choice. Am I willing to compromise just a little bit? Am I willing to compromise once, twice, three times, four times for the sake of employment? And a number of Christians do. In Thyatira, that's what was happening. This woman had convinced them that they had to do that just for the sake of employment. And Jesus was appalled by it because now they were mocking him. They were publicly mocking him, not even hiding it anymore. And the problem is they had lost their saltiness. They'd forgotten about their covenant. They forgot about the agreement that they had made with the Lord, and they lost their saltiness. This issue of false teachers has been around for a long time. The Bible actually gives us some great instruction about what we're supposed to do when they creep up. Let me take you to the book of 1 John. If you're in the book of Revelation, just turn back to the left, four books, and you will run into the book of 1 John. It is the first letter of John. There's the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then there are the three letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're in the book of 1 John, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So here's what John's teaching. And remember, this is the same John who received this revelation. John's teaching this. Whatever somebody teaches you, you measure it against the word of God. You test it. You measure it against the will of God and the nature of God, what you know about God, what you have learned about God. And if it doesn't measure up, then you stay away from it. 
That person is the Antichrist. That's how far John would go. If they bring you a teaching other than what Jesus Christ has brought to you, you stay away from them. He'll take it a step further in 2 John. We're going to go over just one book. In my Bible, that's one page. You don't even have to turn the page in my Bible. 2 John chapter 7. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, listen to this, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. John takes it up a, a whole nother level. He says, if anybody comes to you, a false teacher, a Jezebel, a prophetess, claiming the authority of God, and they teach you something contrary to the word of God, don't even welcome them. Don't even greet them, because by doing so, you're sharing in their wicked work. Stay away from them, because you have to protect your saltiness. If you don't, they're there to try to steal it from you. John actually says, make sure that they don't take from you what you have worked for. Make sure that they don't rob you of this relationship that you have with Christ. We're going to get into that concept more in, in the coming weeks. It'll show up again actually next week. This concept of losing what you have worked for. If you lose your saltiness, you start down that road. So the church in Thyatira was already there. John says, don't let it happen. Just don't let it happen. Well, we're still in the book of 2 John. Let me show you something. You can have this for free. I, it doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. This is my favorite verse in the book of 2 John. Verse 12. I have much to write to you and do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. When I was in Bible college, I traveled with a camp team. I was gone all summer long. Tina and I were dating. She would write me a letter every day. And she would put it in the mail and it would show up at camp. And I would open the letter and my heart would be blessed by it. And I'd just think, oh... She loves me so much. She was sitting at home waiting to receive letters from me. And I was not very good at writing letters. Actually, I was extremely good at writing them. I just didn't mail them very well. That was the problem. I didn't put a stamp on it and put it in the mail. So I would write her progressive letters. Some of them would get upward to 20 pages long. When I would see her, I would hand her the letter, and she would read the letter, and her heart would be warmed. But she would always say, why don't you just mail this to me? And I stumbled across this verse, and I started to quote it to her all the time. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. I won every fight, every battle. Because if you're quoting scripture, what's she going to say? So there we go. I, I shut it right down, right there. Favorite verse in the book of Second John, it really is. So John's telling them, you run. You get away from this. You don't let them steal from you what you've worked for. Don't lose your saltiness. And he tells them why. Back in the, the book of Revelation, Jesus actually tells them why. Now, I'm going to cover some things. We're going to go through this really fast. You're going to have to listen really fast. This is great stuff in the, the book of Revelation. Verse 25. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Now, if you have a pen or a pencil with you or a highlighter with you, I want you to make this statement stick out. Until I come. Maybe you want to underline that or circle that in your Bible or highlight that in your Bible. It is very, very significant. The significance of it is this. That is the very first reference in the book of Revelation to what we have in the church 
come to refer to as the rapture. Now, the Bible does not use that word. It is not a biblical term, but it is a biblical concept. The concept is this. The teaching is this. In the Old Testament, God's favor had come to rest on the Jews. At the end of the Old Testament, and the Bible teaches this, God had given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be faithful to Him, and they had rejected every one of those opportunities. So the Lord gave to the nation of Israel a certificate of divorce. When He gave that to them, He told them that they could return. They could repent and return at any given time. Up to today, that has not happened. At the end of the Old Testament, we entered into what's referred to as the intertestamental period. It was a 400-year period of time where God was relatively silent. At the beginning of the New Testament, a new period came on the scene. God's favor had come to rest on you and on me, on the Gentiles. The book of Luke refers to the days that we're living in today as the times of the Gentiles. God's favor rests on us. It's the day of salvation for us. The book of Luke would also teach us that when the fullness of the Gentiles, when a certain number of Gentiles have given their lives to the Lord, then that favor stops. And it stops in the most dramatic of ways. Jesus Christ is coming back for His church, for every one of us. The rapture. Now, if you want to know what that's going to look like, the Bible actually teaches it. We're going to go to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Now, let me stop there for just a second. That term, those who fall asleep, is a term always applied to Christians, people that have died in Christ, to those who have fallen asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. There's the rapture. That's what it looks like. There's going to be the, the loud command of God and the trumpet call and the voice of the archangel and the church will rise to meet Jesus in the air and it'll be unlike anything anybody's ever seen. Jesus says, you remain faithful until that point, until I come. That's what he's telling the church in Thyatira. You hold on to your saltiness until I come. That's great teaching. It's going to show up at least three more times in the book of Revelation, and we are going to plow into it. I'm going to show you what Jesus says about it in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to show you some other teachings from the Bible about this catching up of the church, the rapture. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 26, To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. Two other things. There is a time coming that is referred to as the millennial kingdom. It is the thousand year, one thousand year reign of Christ. The New Testament believers, the church, the bride of Christ will rule during that time right alongside Jesus. Jesus says, the authority that I've been given, I will give to all of my children. He says, I will give to you as the morning star. It's a reference to who he is, his authority, his power. All of his inheritance from God is resting on all of his brothers and sisters, 
on the church for a thousand years. A thousand years. There's some of you in here that have lived nearly that long, but you haven't really crossed it. A thousand years we will reign with Christ. Isn't that cool? Jesus says, you protect your salt. You remain faithful so that you will experience that. You protect your salt. Don't let anybody steal it. It's a really great preacher in San Antonio, Texas. He's a preacher and a teacher. He talks about the uncommon life that we have in Christ. In his teaching in that, he says that if we really want to experience the uncommon life found in Jesus, then we have to be willing to tank our reputation, which means we have to quit worrying about what the world believes and what the world thinks, and we have to focus on what Jesus thinks and live for him. If we're willing to do that, then according to this teacher, this preacher, we receive an uncommon life, a life that does not make sense to anybody else. This past week, articles showed up in the newspaper, and I'm sure some of you saw it. It's about a restaurant in the state of Pennsylvania that offers discounts on Sundays to Christians. All you have to do is bring a bulletin from whatever church you attend. You bring your bulletin with you, you show it to them, and they'll give you a 10% discount. Anybody seen this? Few of you have. Only a few of you have. There's a group of people led by one individual that are suing that restaurant for discrimination. They think it's wrong. They don't think they should be allowed to do that. And they found a judge to agree with them. So they're filing suit against this restaurant saying, you're discriminating against the non-Christians. You can't do that. Well, this is one of those articles on the internet where people can respond. They can share their thoughts. There's a number of people that are saying they disagree with what this group is trying to do to them. And there's also a number of people that are saying that they agree with it. In the middle, there's a group of people that are saying that the restaurant ought to just stop it. Just quit giving the discount. The whole thing will go away. The owners of the restaurant have pledged to fight it as long and as hard as they have to. They will fight it in the court systems because it is their right as business owners to give a discount to Christians if they want to. The owner of the restaurant actually said this, we have a discount for people 65 and older and nobody's suing us for that. We have a discount for children 12 and under and nobody's suing us for that. So we will fight this as far as it takes. That is an uncommon life. The people that are responding on the internet don't understand their commitment to that. It's going to cost them tens of thousands of dollars, and the owners of this restaurant don't care. They're going to fight it all the way through because they have an uncommon life founded in Jesus Christ. Pretty salty people. They really are. They're living the everlasting covenant of salt for everybody to see. And I can tell you this, if Tina and I were driving anywhere near the state of Pennsylvania, we would go off track to go eat at that restaurant. We'd pay full price and tip big. We don't care what it would take because these people have an uncommon life in Jesus Christ that other people don't understand. This fellow in San Antonio would say this, God grants us an uncommon life in direct proportion to our sacrifice for him. God grants us an uncommon life in direct proportion to our sacrifice for him. Most of that is tied to your salt, to your salt. I want you to think about that. If you hold on to this packet, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is just keep it in the front of your Bible. So as often as you're thumbing through your Bible, you'll see that little packet of salt. It'll remind you of your everlasting covenant with God 
and your need to protect your saltiness. Because Jesus says, if your salt loses its flavor, how do you get it back? If you lose your saltiness, how do you get it back? Church in Thyatira needed to hear that, and the message that Jesus told them over and over and over again was this, you repent. You repent of what you have done. You repent of your lack of saltiness and return. It's that simple. You come back. But understand this, there's a point where God says, I cannot be mocked. And if we cross that point, it's pretty disastrous. Protect yourself so that you don't. Protect your salt, if you will. It matters. The world has distorted that teaching, really has. If you go on uh, Wikipedia, the Internet's version of an encyclopedia, and you study out some of the things about salt, you'll find that one of our popular expressions, things like this, take it with a grain of salt, has been twisted and been given credit, or credit has been given to places where it shouldn't have been. On Wikipedia, it actually says that Pliny the Elder came up with this concept of taking things with a grain of salt. And uh, it's interesting the way that whole thing worked out. Here it is for you just real quick. They were wrestling with poisons during that day. And they came to Pliny the Elder, the wise sage of the community, and they said, what are we supposed to do? People are ingesting poisons. And, And Pliny said, here's what you're supposed to do. I don't know where people come up with this stuff. You take two roasted walnuts, you take two figs, and 20 leaves of rue. Pound it up, grind it all together. This is, was done in the year 77 AD. Grind it all up and then add a pinch of salt to it. And when you do that, you'll be able to swallow it and it will offset all of the poison that you have ingested. People started doing that. The pharmaceutical company then grabbed hold of that because they were making medications that tasted terrible, absolutely terrible. The only way they could get people to swallow them was to put a little salt in it. Take it with a grain of salt. See where the teaching came from? Then it progressed into the realm of the sarcastic. If somebody says something to you that you don't believe, take it with a grain of salt. Don't listen. People have been doing that in the church for a long time, picking and choosing what they wanted to listen to, taking it with a grain of salt, rather than remembering what salt really is in Scripture, a sign of our covenant agreement with God, a sign of our covenant agreement with Jesus. It's all mixed together. You cannot separate yours out from His, and you shouldn't want to. You have an everlasting covenant of salt made between you and the Lord. Honor that until he comes. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand and pray with us? And so, Father, we find ourselves looking at the church in Thyatira and the people there, and once again, it'd be so easy to judge them if we didn't realize that you were talking to us as well. This issue of compromise for our own gain, it's everywhere, literally everywhere. More than likely, we've all fallen into some trap associated with it. And it's stolen a bit of our saltiness. Lord, help us avoid that. Warn us like you warned the church in Thyatira. And Father, I'm praying that we will all listen, we who have ears, spiritual ears. Let us hear what you said to the church. And let us apply it and live it. Father, would you help us in that pursuit that you will always be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to offer an invitation this morning. If you'd like to talk to somebody about a relationship with Jesus Christ or with the church, you can do that. People sometimes wonder why we talk about that with the church. Well, this is it. At Libby Christian Church, we believe in people publicly identifying with the body. 
A number of people think, well, if I've worshipped someplace for a long time, I'm, I'm just a member. Well, here you have to make a public identification with the body. So if you have worshipped with us for a long time and you've liked what you've seen and you want to be a part of it, you want to throw in and, and say, I want my life and my influence to be with Libby Christian Church, then we'd invite you to come talk to somebody about what it means to be a member of this congregation. But if you want to pray with somebody, you can do that at this time as well. Maybe you're praying for yourself or maybe you're praying for somebody else. Whatever the need might be, God is here to meet it. All you have to do is go over to this door. Deanie will be there. Just tell him what's on your heart and what's on your mind, and he'll make sure your need gets met. I've said this before, and I believe it with all my heart. Where two or three gather together in the name of Jesus, he is there in their midst. It's a teaching of the Bible. For people that are willing to claim that, they find a power that they cannot find anyplace else. So respond to the invitation that God might meet your needs. Let's sing loud.